Hello, and welcome to Book Chats with Shannon, the podcast where we discuss new or upcoming books, interview authors from the Twitter writing community, and give you the chance to get to know these titles and the writers behind them just a little better. So take a deep breath, find a comfortable seat, pour yourself a cup of tea, listener, because here is your host, Shannon. Good afternoon, lads and lasses, and welcome back to Book Chats with Shannon. I'm your host, Shannon, and I'm here today with Asif and his wonderful novel, Christmas in Calcutta, a Charlotte Holmes mystery. Welcome, Asif. Wonderful to have you. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, I have to say, as a Sherlock Holmes fan, I was fascinated by your book. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Yes, certainly. I mean, I first had the idea, actually, I started off doing a stage play on Sherlock Holmes and uh, Watson, but I didn't abandon it. You know, I just couldn't see it sort of coming alive. And then I transferred it to a book, and I was looking at a different take on the Sherlock Holmes character. I mean, what I think was lacking was sort of the female roles kind of thing. So I flipped gender on Sherlock Holmes, and it certainly opened up a whole lot of plots around that character. In addition, I made Watson a Indian doctor rather than an English one and set it in India. And then that really sort of suddenly came up with a character arc and a drive that you could really get your sort of hands into. For example, you've got uh, Charlotte, who's very, very clever, obviously, Sherlock Holmes. She's an avatar for Sherlock Holmes. And, but she's also a woman in a very patriarchal society. And as you know, right, she starts off at a disadvantage. And Watson is Watson. I changed the name from Watson to Watson. He's an Indian doctor, and obviously it, he's being ruled by the British Raj at that time. So he has these, you know, a colonial, you know, suppression, if you like. And so those kind of, what I was really getting at was is these two characters on, are on the periphery of society, of that society, where the women are, you know, treated to one side and the Indians and the Asians look down upon. And it's, you know, really very much a white man's world. So I wanted to pick the, that society for my characters and challenge them. That's where the real drive was for the characters. It was only a one-off book initially. I mean, you've started reading it, so you know, you're familiar with some of the characters. And it's really, as you sort of write about the character and how you see that, because having Charlotte married, you know, <laughs> opens up a whole variety of questions. What, how does she choose a partner? You know, all these other things. So it makes it quite interesting to have that balance between incredible intellectualism, you know, incredible sort of you know, perception and wit, but also... To have it undermined because you you know you're a woman and that frustration I sort of try and tease into it place in that you know world of how she achieves recognition so that's where the real drive for the character initially started. Oh, that's fascinating, and I love the warmer dynamics that Doctor Watkin brought to the character. Yeah, I mean, what I think uh, sometimes is missed out from the adaptations is if you look at the. Nigel Bruce's interpretation in the Basil Rathbone series, he's played as a bit of a buffer, you know, a bit of an idiot. Whereas if you read the original books, he's quite, you know, he's a very intelligent man. He's a doctor. He's writing the journals. So he's, you know, he's, you know, literate. He's eloquent. What happens is that Sherlock is obviously one or two steps ahead of him. So he always playing catch up. But what I want to explore here, and I think in this book, in the additional books, was he's actually a very good doctor. And so He's quite integral to the plot. He's not just an observer, which makes, you know, he, he makes him a very passive character. So very much he's active, he's doing things, you know, he's 
helping people in the stories and he's actually saves Charlotte's life a couple of times as well later on. But I won't give the story away. <laughs> no, actually, as for the setting that you picked, something that I was fascinated by as someone who hasn't been exposed to that culture is how big a role tea played in the story. <laughs> yes, very much so. It's a social lubricant in more ways than one. It, it does because it's obviously tea, you know, it's not coffee out there, it's always tea, and it's always quite sort of milky tea. And also they have a uh, quite a brewed tea with the sort of cardamoms and vanilla pods and all that, which makes it quite fragrant as well. So, and tea is also a hospitality kind of avatar where you sort of say, okay, what is this tea coming? You're becoming a social, it becomes a social event, it becomes a hospitality event, it also allows you to sort of get beyond the initial sort of warmth of actually sharing a cup of tea with someone actually opens you up to having a conversation with them. So that very much so is a social lubricant because, you know, they don't drink that much out there. They do obviously drink a little bit, but tea is very much everyone can take part in that. So it's very much a social foundation stone in India and Pakistan. That is fascinating to learn as someone who isn't really exposed to that culture. Um, I give you all credit for a lot of bravery because you tackled a time period where, unfortunately, there was a lot of class distinction and you don't avoid it and you don't dodge it. You tackle it head on. So kudos on that one. Thank you very much, Anna. Thanks. You're welcome. One of the other things I sort of wanted to point out was when you have a male and a female character, one of the first people who read the book and said, oh, are they going to fall in love? And I was like horrified. Oh, no, no. Because you always have this, I don't know if you're familiar with Moonlighting or the classic rom-com is where man and woman meet and they sort of collide and then they go through friendship and then they end up together. But what I thought, that kind of dynamic in this relationship wouldn't work because it would undermine the relationship. I don't want it to turn into a sexual relationship. It's a, it's later on in the books, actually, he articulates it better, what, a, what he says. You know, he admires her intellect. He just, you know, her perception and acuity and her reasoning and logic. For someone who's trained as a scientist, that kind of thing, who's someone who can surpass him, it would be fascinating, would be just wonderfully intrigued by how she's doing this. So he wouldn't see it as a, obviously, he knows she's a woman, she's an attractive woman, but he would see that as more important than the sex. So that's why I said, no, no, no. They never, 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 never will ever be a romantic couple. They are friends. They're deep friends. And I think if you choose friendship, it's quite interesting. I was talking about this to someone else, that if friendship has a different criteria to a lover, uh, you know, a friend betrayed, betrays you has more impact than a lover because you move on. There is a different kind of dynamics if there's a, a relationship involved. And that is something I sort of look at later on in the books. So very much... I wanted to not put her on a pedestal, but to allow her to breathe, to have the room right. And also because she's already married and, you know, that, as you know, story drives the uh, first book through. And the first arc is about her love, that their relationship, her relationship with Charles, and the book sort of follows through that. And that is only resolved, this arc, if you like, in the fourth book, The Horrible Hall. Excuse the <laughs> loose language. But uh, yeah, fortunately, the literary titles have got the better of me. <laughs> well, I give you credit for a memorable and rather colourful title. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, yeah. So you mentioned in there, I like Charlotte as an individual, but the meeting 
at least the first time between Dr. Watkin and Charlotte is a very unique one in literature. I've never run across anything quite like that. Could you explain that one to our listeners? Yes, certainly. So the scene starts really with he's in a train traveling to Calcutta and she bursts into the compartment. Firstly, an Indian doctor wouldn't have that much interaction with the English lady, so he's a little bit stunned by this. But she's quite breezy and she wafts through the cab carriage and out through the window and he's like, mm, what's going on? Suddenly she's pursued by her brother-in-law, Jonathan, who's after her. So we start off from day one, right? You know, so the first page, there is, you know, pursuit in action. So he can't find her. He, you know, mistreats Button quite badly, you know, and leaves and she comes down. And then she explains why she's running away, who Jonathan is. It's actually Charles's, it's her brother-in-law, Charles's younger brother, and why she's doing it. And just to sort of frame that is that, at that point, she's quite low in the sense that just she's come through a miscarriage. So she's suffering from postnatal depression. And in those time, Victorian times, what the thing was, they would say the women had the hysterics or whatever, and they would lock them up. They would just isolate them. And that, obviously, if someone like Charlotte is absolutely horrible to be in prison like that. And she works through that depression and from that, she learns something and she escapes her confinement and to make sure that whatever the secret she's learned, she can get, get to the right people. So that's what the plot driver is. And just I want to, what's happened there is that her intellect is undermined by her depression, by her like, sort of suffering over her miscarriage. And because she really wanted the child and what happens is that the baby you know, dies inside her and for a while she has to carry the baby with her and she knows it's passed away, you know, she's carrying a corpse and it's a horrible, horrible feeling for that. And so I want to, and that would, you know, really undermine anyone and, and drive and that sort of undermines her. So see her at a very low stage and that's why Wutton comes in with a tea and he helps her out of that situation and that's where the bonding with her occurs and him, he's, he says it to her, you're my patient and she, you know, and, she recovers from that and they, you know, prosper together as a relationship, as a investigators going forward. But yeah, very much so is about how she recovers, how she's at the lowest depth of her character and how she finds, you know, solace with him. And he, you know, he's very much repellent against locking up someone with depression. He wants to treat them. He's, oh, I also show, but then as someone who's very pioneering, he's also reading up and, the thing with setting things back in the uh, past is you can look forward and you can sort of draw things back. And if you trace the history of psychoanalysis or mental health treatment, you can see how the early steps were being taken. So someone as intelligent as what then would be reading about those. So now he's applying that to Charlotte. So you can see how having knowledge, being set in that historical period gives you a little bit of leeway to put meta commentary about what's happening about treatment, about society, and about other things. What I love about his character in particular is the respect. He knows how intelligent she is, but he doesn't undermine the fact that at the heart, yes, it is a physical problem, but it's also emotional. And he isn't afraid to get in there and say, let's see if we can make this better. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I mean, I think what the drives a relationship going forward is, uh, you have you reached the point where Branwell uh, arrives or not? Yes. So what, <laughs> okay. So uh, they 
just for the listeners, it's a journey. They travel on the on the train. There's a lot of stuff on the train. There's a murder to solve that. Then they go forward, and there's some adventure with the Raj as well. And then the meet up with Charlotte's brother. So again, you know, what I was, it's all about flipping it right. So we had Sherlock Holmes becomes a woman. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes had an older brother, right? Mycroft, smarter brother who was more intelligent than Sherlock Holmes, if such a thing's possible. <laughs> so I flipped it and I made him a younger brother who's a bit more idiotic. <laughs> and so that's why he, he, and also there's a sibling rivalry between uh, Branwell and Charlotte. And it's because he can't abide it. You know, as a man, you know, he's very intelligent, but he, he you know, he's not just as as good as Charlotte and he hates his sister who puts him in his place and, you know, he rails against that. And that's a, a trait, their relationship that goes through the books, right? And he sort of nips in and out and he becomes a more important character going forward. And, and I really enjoyed writing Branwell because he's such a hoot. I mean, he just comes out with the extraordinary stuff and because he just lets you sort of go free. When I was writing him, I imagined him out saying, sort of Hugh Grant on steroids because that's the kind of <laughs> foppish guy he would be. He's a, see, one of the things that is that he's not stupid. He's unaware, you know, he doesn't realise that he's, he doesn't know these customs, so he's sort of blunders through. But he's, you know, very perceptive. He, you know, cannot help not being perceptive. You know, Charlotte's younger brother, so he shares a gene pool. But very much so, yeah, they have a relationship, which is antagonistic but loving as well at the same time. And uh, It's a little bit based on my relationship with my sister's and I see, my, I have three daughters, and I see their rivalry as well, sibling rivalry. And so you can tap into that a little bit. Their dynamic was fascinating. It took me a couple of seconds to realize that that was the place marker for Mycroft Holmes in the series. I was like, okay, cool, he's in this. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much. I had to save him, if you like, for that part as he drives out through. Uh, in the, the second book, he is also there as well. They have a, a great adventure in Peshawar. And again, that's, but and without giving the plot away, what happens is that, um, well, actually, I will give it away if I say this <laughs> one thing, because <laughs> I realise there's a, a, a key event in the first book, which you haven't got to yet, which will uh, give the plot away. But anyway, the second book, he, they're there as well. And in the third book, I actually make him a co-narrator. So what you have to have is that, not only do you have the Buffins journals describing his sort of adventure with Charlotte, but because the plot is where there's something else going on, Buffin isn't there. So I use Branwell as a narrator. So he writes in the third person. He writes in a slightly different style, slightly more arrogant and self-aggrandizing. And it's written in italics as well. So you can immediately know, oh, this is Branwell, right? So you, you, you tune in that this is Branwell talking and describing what's happening. So very much so. And then he becomes a steady narrator through the rest of the books. He's, you know, 50-50 almost between him and Wuthin. And he gives you a lot of freeway because part of the problems with the Sherlock Holmes books was there was always one narrator. And, for example, one of the – an affair Bohemia, I think it was. There is – if you read the book, Sherlock Holmes comes back to Wuthin and he describes what happened. He said the fire, the woman went to rescue something, and it was a place where she kept the secret letter or something. And it's all described, yeah? And when you see it dramatised in film, they always do a flashback and show you what happened. And it's one of the key things is if you have a narrator, everything has to happen around them. And if it doesn't, somebody's got to come and tell them what happened, which can be quite dull when you're reading it. So to have a plot where you can suddenly say, okay, I can have another narrator here who can 
that co contribute to that. And then the two narrators can meet up and you can switch viewpoints and you can have one narrator thinking about the other one and vice versa. So that gives you really quite little layers and themes you can have where you can sort of give two different viewpoints about the same event or the same character. Yeah, it's a little bit of, it, it's difficult to describe it because when you see it written down, you can see how it works. You see, I will flip scenes when somebody meets another one, like I'll switch to, but then I'll switch to uh, Branwell. So that's where, you know, those, that's why he's a very important character going forward. Okay, I'll certainly keep my eye on him. Now, circling back here a little bit, I know Sherlock sure. Holmes is in the public domain, and I hope everybody who's listening has at least given it a once-over. Do you have a favorite Sherlock Holmes? I know the role's been covered many, many times by many, many talented actors. There's so much to choose from, Shannon. It really is. I mean, I love the Basil Rathbone because I, I grew up with that. There were so many of them, and they're always on when I was a child. I sort of devoured them. We had the Granada series as well. Uh, Jeremy Brett, he was wonderful. He was just superb. And he played it in that classic uh, mm, a way that is described in the Strand. You know, they, they picturized it from the Strand magazines, the drawings that were done at the time. And it very much was almost an absolute uh, copy of that. And he he's an exceptional uh, Sherlock Holmes. I did also enjoy Simon, Nichol uh, Simon Nicholson in The Sound Percent Solution, where it is, it's, it's about. It's a Mickey take, about the slightly sardonic take on Sherlock Holmes. And that's another good one that is quite sort of slightly off. One of the other ones which I quite really enjoyed was, I don't know if people were familiar with, is Michael Caine and the guy who played Gandhi. Who was it? Get his name now. Ben Kingsley, yeah. Yes. So they play <laughs> Sherlock Holmes and Watson. But in this one, Watson is the really clever one and he hires this actor to play. Sherlock Holmes. So he's a slightly you know, idiotic one. Oh, so that's brilliant. <laughs> so you can see how you can move things around. And, you know, it's, it's such a good template. I mean, if you look at the Sherlock Holmes character, House, you know, the TV series, that's Sherlock Holmes. And as a doctor, as a medical doctor, he's solving mysteries, he's getting inspirations, and he's being rude, you know, and he's also actually a drug addict. <laughs> so, you know, House is very much an adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes character. And you see that a lot of other sort of things, you know, where they do have that if you adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. It's such a wonderful way, a, a character. You can, you can play so much around with him, that type of person, and how they view the world, how they see things, and how the world sees them. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of room in that aspect. And you can see that, how, for example, Robert Downey Jr., when he played Sherlock, he played him in a slightly different way, more modern, if you like, more casual way. More physical as well, very much so. Uh, you know, fighting shark, not a you know cerebral as you would normally cast him. That's true, and at least we forget Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> oh yeah, he is absolutely wonderful. I mean, I, I love the Ben, <laughs> the, the Cumberbatch. For him, me right because it's sort of British production, and they're very much adapted the stories, and they both look really well. Him and um, Freeman, I think, is it? Mm -hmm. They complimented each other and he's quite you know he's a superstar now after all the uh marvel films mm -hmm. or not but freeman is a very subtle character and they really complement each other and the bbc did a really good job in adapting them and you know um, updating them to the modern uh, era it's fortunate they didn't do enough of them there's you know 
they, they didn't do you know more stories, but what they did were very, very good. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed them. I did as well. Well, we are wrapping up a little bit here on time. I want to make sure our listeners know if they want to join along on the journey, because we will uh, revisit Sherlock Holmes's books, especially yours, uh, in upcoming episodes. Where can our listeners purchase Christmas in Kilcona? Right. It's available on the uh, ebook format on Amazon. It's also excuse me, available as a printed book on lulu.com. You can just get on there and just order a book. It's got all my other books as well. If you just do a search for A.M. Sardar, it'll do a list of those. And it's available in, you know, other e-books. It's distributed out to I remember, a couple of American stores as well. Mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble, I think, is available on there as well. Goodreads as well. So it's, you know, pushed it out to there. And I've just, it's a, so first book is A Christmas in Calcutta. It's written in quartets. So there's a quartet, and then there's a time jump to the next quartet. And I'm just in the middle of the second quartet. And so the first four books are in India. The next four books are in Europe, around the First World War. And then, this is what I think you'd like, uh, the next quartet is called the Yankee Quartet. And that's in America, of (laughs) course. Yay, it's on the home ground for Shannon. Woo! Absolutely, yeah. And it starts on the East Coast. And (laughs) the four books, and it hops across, and it ends up in Los Angeles. And not only that, because... There's a time jump, and that's in the 1920s, right through the 1920s. The characters do get older, and they get children as well. They get married, they get children. You know, I'm giving it away, but, you know, there is a development of the characters, and other characters come in who give them a hard time. So, yeah, very much so. <laughs> I just finished on Our Man in Munich, and that had a, it was real good fun about that. That's the start of the First World War, and it's about spies and about sort of a Savangali people, you know, manipulating children and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's uh, enjoyed writing that one. That was very good, uh, <laughs> great fun. And Branwell has wonderful, wonderful scenes in that. You you'll, you'll laugh out loud, I mean, honestly. That's good feedback on that one. All right. Well, I will be sure to let you know what I think as we go along here. We're closing in in our time, so I wanted to let everybody know we will visit you with again. And if they have any questions, feel free to catch us on Twitter, be chats with Shannon, and to catch up with the uh, current populations and the authors that uh, write these awesome novels. Thank you so much, Esif, for being with us. Thank you, Sharon. Thank Great pleasure talking to you. And I'm very happy enjoying the book, and you'll enjoy the others as well. Thank you uh, very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful afternoon. <laughs> this episode today is brought to you by A.M. Sarter, author of the Charlotte Holmes series, now available on Amazon Kindle. Thank you for listening to Book Chats with Shannon. Want to know more about your host? Follow Shannon on Twitter at BeChatsWShannon, where you can get a sneak peek on our next featured author or the title. Oh, and yes, before you go, please subscribe to the channel to make sure you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed this content and would like to help support this channel or reserve one of my monthly sponsored slots, you can find me on Ko-Fi at BookChatsWShannon. Till the next time, have a wonderful day and stay safe out there.